10 by 9 is 8 years old and you're listening to a very special birthday podcast. I'm Paul Doran and every September we celebrate 10 by 9's birthday in the Black Box in Belfast. In 2011, Padraig Otuma and I started 10 by 9 in front of about 25 people, mostly people we had bullied to be there to be honest, and now we have an audience of around 200 people every month. If you've never been to a 10 by 9 well, it's a live event where 9 people have up to 10 minutes each to tell a true story from their own life. We love what we do and we love the stories people get to share. As has become tradition on our birthday, it's our comedy fundraiser, so we get another chance to hear some very funny stories as well as a few new ones. And this podcast has all the new ones. Now, I often give thanks to Organised Religion for the wealth of material it has supplied to us over the years, whether it's Catholic ritual, evangelical street preaching or Jewish tradition, a rich seam to be mined. Here's Malagy O'Doherty on one particular rite of passage. There's a little sound distortion at the beginning, but only for a few seconds. Once in my young life, I was punched in the face by the bishop. Other sacramental events were repeated down the years. I went to confession and communion until I got fed up with them and ultimately ceased to believe in their value. That is to say, I could go through both rituals still with my eyes closed. But I was only once punched by the bishop, never really learned from that how to be punched again. And it is only when you've done something a second and a third time that you feel you're getting the hang of it. Later, I was caned and slapped with a leather strap by the brothers. I was occasionally kicked in the balls by some light and winkle pickers. And in time, all of these atrocities acquired an air of the ordinary in the life of a growing boy. But getting punched by the bishop still stands out for its oddness, its uniqueness, its unsatisfactory solitariness. The occasion of my confirmation was long anticipated. In those days, we were confirmed young, I believe I was six at the time, though others tell me that that is unlikely. Still, I was there, I was punched in the face by the bishop, and I should know. (laughs) The punch in itself was not a surprise. Well, actually, I'm sure that even an unexpected punch still feels a bit like a surprise. But I had known for weeks in advance that it was coming, that I would be marched to the altar reels by my sponsor, that I would take a new name, that I would become a soldier of Christ, one who might be ready to die for his faith, that I would pledge not to touch alcoholic beverages before I was 25 years old, and that I would be punched in the face to to affirm that I was a man now. Half the people being confirmed that day would be girls. I don't suppose they were to be punched in the face. Maybe they would be pinched on the cheek. The boys would be expected to raise their chins proudly to the bishop and take the blow with dignity and pride in their masculine resolve to serve Jesus and live to the age of 25 without intoxicating beverages. The main preparation for this, as with other sacraments, was through school. The teacher would set out the theology behind the occasion. You went to confession when you reached the age of reason and were spiritually capable of sin. And there are enough stories in the memoirs of Catholic writers for you not to need me to tell you what an innocent affair confession was, the difficulty of thinking up sins to tell. The teacher was helpful in this regard. Were you cheeky to your sister? Did you disobey your mother? Did you have impure thoughts? Impure thoughts? What are they, miss? Well, perhaps when you're older. 
Auditing one's sins was a bit like the routine of making out your annual accounts is now, if you're self-employed. You wanted more money when you were earning it, but hope it will add up to less when you're submitting it to the tax man. <laughs> you didn't want to think of yourself as a sinner, but neither did you want to turn up in confession with nothing to report. Bad thoughts and disobedience were the usual fallbacks. Bad thoughts at six years old. Preparation for confession focused on the moment when you would be alone in a dark cupboard with a priest. It would be a worrying moment, <laughs> one that you might dread in advance, more reasonably now that we know what we know. <laughs> Preparation for confirmation was similar. It was the anticipation of being a little boy before a daunting adult, but this time the bishop. Mom, does he really punch me in the face? No, it's only symbolic, a light tap. That's not what other boys in school said. He has a big ring, and when he hits you, it leaves the mark of the ring in your face for the rest of your life, if you're not in a state of grace. I didn't believe that. I'd never seen anyone with the mark of the ring on them. Aye, but you feel it, and if you're a sinner, the ring burns. So I had to be in a state of sanctifying grace. That was achieved by going to confession and communion and then taking particular care not to have bad thoughts until after you were punched in the face by the bishop. <laughs> there were practical as well as spiritual preparations to be made. I had to have a new suit of clothes, in this case a new jumper knitted by my mother. I was, I am, a twin, so this was double the expense for a family, more than we could bear. My mother said that having a new jumper was a lot smarter than having a suit like everyone else's. And we had to find a sponsor. This couldn't be my father, but had to be some other Catholic adult who would vouch for my Christian purity and undertake to monitor my spiritual growth. Mr. McKillop across the street said he'd do it. <laughs> Haven't seen him since. And I had to choose a confirmation name. I am Malachi John O'Doherty. That's what was on my birth certificate. But I had to choose a third name. I chose Nicholas, after Santa Claus. <laughs> Saint Nicholas. I still believed in Santa, even as I was to be confirmed as man enough to take a punch on the chin from the bishop. <laughs> I think the stress of all this could have been eased if someone had given me a little practice in being lightly punched. I still had a woman teacher at that time. She wasn't going to do it. And to be honest, I wasn't looking for volunteers. I was just bracing myself for the day. It was an evening in early summer, as I recall. The boys were all down one side of the church with their sponsors. The girl down the other side were theirs. It was a solemn occasion. This was in St. Agnes's Church on the Andersonstown Road in 1957 or 58. In turn, we went up and knelt at the altar rails with a sponsor standing behind us. Then the bishop moved along the line, saying whatever it was he had to say. If I have it right, the sponsor would answer the difficult questions on my behalf. It mightn't have been safe to address me directly with the question, do you reject Satan and all his works and all his empty promises? I hadn't seen those works or heard those promises. I might have been a little curious to know more about them before rejecting them outright. Then there was a wee add-on about not taking alcohol until I was 25. Yes, 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 get on with it. The bishop moved along the line. The sponsor standing behind the boys made the undertakings on their behalf. 
then each boy got a punch in the face. None of them seemed to take it too badly. No one fell over. No one cried out in pain. No one was burnt. No tears, no shrieks. What brave boys my fellows were. Was I up to enduring this in my turn? So I braced myself as he approached, and this sour-faced man in lavish robes was now in front of me. My sponsor was behind me, perhaps to protect me as much as to vouch for me, perhaps to catch me if I fell back. The punch when it came was almost disappointingly slight, a mere tap of the knuckle against my jaw. And I was thinking, he thinks I'm soft. <laughs> he thinks I can't take it. This is all a charade. He doesn't believe I'm a soldier of Christ at all. He thinks I'm just a crybaby that would fall apart if he hit me properly. No one would expect me to die for my faith. This was all unexpectedly disappointing. And I went back to my pew thinking that I hadn't really proven myself at all, that the confirmation hadn't taken, that I'd like a chance to do this again properly. But I never did get punched in the face by a bishop again. Thank you. Thanks, Malachi. It must be tough being a twin in those rites of passage events. You get half the attention and only half the money. By the way, my confirmation name is Edmund. Yes, Edmund, while Padraig is Luke. Next, two stories back to back, and they couldn't be more different. In a few moments, you'll hear Helen McClements, and she probably has the odd F-bomb in there. But first up, here's Bob Salisbury. We came to live in Seskinor near Omer in 2001, bought five acres, uh, intended to build a house, and then decided that we'd try and turn the place into a wildlife area. We had no knowledge of how to do that, no money to do it, and uh, no understanding of how you would start. But somebody said to us, it's hard going sometimes, but take photographs from day one of everything you do, and then you'll see the progress you're making. I took pictures of the land, but trying to take pictures of wildlife's a different thing. So I bought a suit from the internet that would help. It was a camouflage suit. You zipped it up at the front, and it was heavy suit, but with camouflage netting all over, all over your hands, all over your boots, and the hood zipped on, so only your eyes were showing. It had a design fault because it was made for a man of 20, I think, because it was very heavy. And as soon as you put the whole thing on, walking along in it was very difficult, very hot, and it would chafe. But I, <laughs> I decided that uh, I'd try it out. Two miles away, there were some rabbits on a hillside, and I thought I'd try it there. Drove to the farm gate, parked in the gate, hid behind the car, because I had to take all the clothes off, or the underpants and the vest, zip this whole thing on, hurriedly zipped so nobody could see me, the hood on the top, just the eyes showing, took the Nikon out of the camera and wallowed off up the field, sat down in a hedgerow and it worked perfectly, instantly. A wood pigeon landed in the tree, a squirrel didn't know I was there. I thought, what a brilliant suit. I thought I'll try it out in the middle of the field. So I walked out into the middle of the field, wallowed really, not walked, 
lay down on the field, and it was one of those delightful days that you sometimes get in Ireland where you realize winter's over, the spring is in the air and there's heat. A skylark trilled somewhere high in the, in the air. Collared doves were mewing. I could hear a raven's voice coming on the breeze. And I dozed. <laughs> and I woke up with a real start because it was raining on me. And it was quite heavy rain and I suddenly thought, oh dear. The trouble was it wasn't rain. While I'd slept, a tractor had come into the field and it was spreading slurry. <laughs> I don't know whether you know, city dwellers might not know the aromatic qualities of slurry, <laughs> but pig slurry, and this was pig slurry, is, is the daddy of them all and it had somehow soaked into my camouflage suit down to my vest and the stink inside that suit was awful it nearly put my lights out altogether to be honest I jumped to my feet and wallowed off to the woodland to get out of the way and as I ran I turned and the tractor driver was out of the tractor looking in my direction. <laughs> I'm actually expecting him here, Paul, any day to give us the tale of the, the day he saw Bigfoot in Tyrone. <laughs> um, the slurry had definitely dotted the camel slips, uh, the strips. And I wandered back to the car, opened the boot, put the camera in, and in my rush to zip the hood up, I'd tangled all the strips in the zip, and I pulled and tugged at it, and it would not move. It was a two-person job to get the thing out. And I suddenly realized, after tugging and pulling for a few minutes, that I was going to have to drive back in my car in this stinking suit. And I slammed the door, the boot down on the, the car and thought, the day can't get worse. Do you ever do something that a minute after you've done it, you think, I shouldn't do that? My car was one of those fancy jobs where you can open the boot separate to the doors. The camera was in the boot. The, the phone was in the boot. The keys were in the boot. <laughs> I suddenly realized I was going to have to walk back in this stinking suit that was hot and sweaty. The, the one thing I did think was okay, nobody could see me inside there, but the first bit was all right along the country lanes, there's nobody about, but I got to the main road and things were different. I stood near the hedge and I thought I'll try and hitch a lift, you know. And uh, nobody stopped. I suppose they couldn't see me. Uh, um, a few honked their horns, and one white van, builder's van, did slow down. I thought I was going to get lucky, and somebody leaned out of the window and shouted a friendly greeting of pervert. 
I did, I did wonder what sort of deviance he'd been associating with, <laughs> if they're all dressed in camouflage stuff. But, I mean, I weathered this un, unwanted attention and shuffled along, safe in the knowledge that nobody knew who was inside. But further up the road, there was a, an elderly lady leaning on her gate, and a white terrier was by her side, and it growled as I, as I walked up. Shut up, Toby, she said. Not a bad day. <laughs> she said it again. Not a bad day. Now the sun's uh, out. And I said, uh, great to see a dry day after all the rain we've had. <laughs> My voice sounded a bit muffled inside the thing. Someone spread in slurry, she said. <laughs> Not from round here, are you? She said. <laughs> no, I said, amazed she'd not said anything about the fact she could only see my eyes. Thought so. What are you, a foreigner? No, no, I live near Seskinor. Some understanding seemed to dawn on her face. I had a cousin lived in Seskinor. We had to put her in a home. <laughs> well, I'll best be on my way, I said, preparing to move off. Is someone looking after you, she said. Toby the terrier was cocking his leg on my trousers. I was just ambling along the main road, the suit chafing and my mood deteriorating, when a police patrol car came alongside. That's all I need, I thought. Two faces looked in my direction and they were clearly bursting to laugh. Something was clearly amusing them. The nearest one said, do you need some help, sir? Hardly suppressing a smile. No, thanks, I'm just making my way home. Apparently, he'd received a call from a lady saying there was a poor soul wandering the streets who needed some assistance. <laughs> and where might that be, sir? Oh, I live on the edge of Sherwood Forest, of Seskinor Forest. What a stupid thing to say when you're dressed as a tree. <laughs> that figure says his mate. <laughs> Have you a carer, sir, he said. <laughs> Alan bloody Titchmarsh, I said. <laughs> They broke into outright laughter at that. Why don't you just tell us what are you doing? He said in a more controlled and courteous way. And when I'd explained, he said, would you like a lift back? I said, no thanks, not far to go now. The last thing I wanted was to be seen getting out of a squad car in the village, <laughs> dressed in full uh, camouflage gear. It had been the talk of the village for months. Okay, he said as they pulled away. Be careful of ash dieback or squirrels after nuts. 
Everyone's a joker, I thought. Can you smell slurry, his mate asked. At home, the stinking suit was finally removed, doused in petrol, and standing in Wellington's vest and Homer Simpson boxer shorts, I had the immense satisfaction of seeing the whole thing turn into a burning bush. I should have known not to have seconds of goat curry. And thirds, definitely not thirds. This curry was, like most I had eaten in Southeast Asia, generously spiced with red chilli, and not even the coconut milk was rendering it tolerable. But on I lingered at the table because this was a celebration for not just one, but two good reasons. Rahesh, the owner of our backpacker hostel, had just completed the building of a sixth hut, so at least two more guests could climb a rickety wooden ladder to enjoy a rustic stay and sleep on less than pristine bedsheets. Each hut did at least have a bathroom, although water pressure was an issue, as neither the shower nor the flush had much of an oomph. I had taken to using the loo in cafes and bus stations and even shops if they'd allow me, because I was very much in love with my boyfriend, and I feared that this may not be reciprocated if he had to hear me emptying my bowels through paper-thin walls. <laughs> On the upside, each hut cost the equivalent of six pounds per night, and since we were travelling for three months, it was in our best interests to be frugal. Please, eat, eat, urged our host's mother, a tiny, wiry woman who kept appearing at my elbow, smiling a huge, toothless grin as she ladled out spoonfuls of sticky rice and curry. I ate up. I was very hungry. The second reason why this was a celebration was the fact that we were alive and able to eat curry from plates improvised from banana leaves. Two hours earlier, I had feared death by drowning in the Andaman Sea. Come kayaking, it will be fun, said our new American friends, and so we had assembled at 10am on the beach for a trip. The last place I had gone paddling was Killylay, for we had not been issued, or not only been issued with life jackets, but helmets too. Our tentative safely inquiries were met with much derision by the men hiring out the kayaks from their beach shack. You will not need such things. You can swim, right? So in we hopped, and with a push and a whoosh, we were off, paddling through azure waters. It was exhausting. Ooh, let's look at these fish, I would say. What fine phosphorescent creatures. My boyfriend knew rightly that I just wanted to rest. Chicken Island, when we arrive, is unremarkable. We have left one stunning beach with white sand for an identical stunning beach with white sand. There is a bar serving the same jam jars of iridescent red shite, which in Thailand masquerades as a cocktail. I was not a fan of these, and especially not at 11.30, which even by my, standard, my standards was uncalled for. There is pottering and sunbathing and watching in awe as a fruit seller deftly sliced pineapple into uniform pieces with what looked like a machete. But then... I feel rain. Rain does not pitter-patter in Thailand. Rain thunders down in heaving plumps with a force not emulated by the shower in our hut. 
my intrepid boyfriend and the American lads, who have told us by now several times that they are very strong swimmers, are flexing their muscles and gearing up for the challenge. Tourists have come over in a glass-bottomed boat and they are pointing with incredulity at us as we clamber into the kayaks. We paddle fruitlessly. Waves crash into our faces and my stomach lurches and my arms ache. The sky is a huge purple bruise. Paddle harder, shouts my boyfriend. Fuck up, I shout back. (laughs) I cannot paddle any harder. I have reached peak paddle. (laughs) Can we go back, I yell. No, he cries. Look, it's calmer out there. It is not calmer out there. It actually looks worse. I am going back, I decide. I will swim if I have to. We turn the kayak. The wind behind us makes our paddle to shore infinitely easier and we are almost catapulted onto the sand. There is hardly any room in the glass-bottomed boat, but for a price they let us drag on our kayaks and we bump our way back to Tonsai Beach. We pass our Americans who are still valiantly trying to conquer the waves, We ask if we can stop and pick them up. I can't hear what our captain says, but his voice is gruff and his hand gestures are more than a little dismissive. Back on dry land, we scan the seas. Please, we ask the owner of the kayak shack, can you do anything? Our friends are still out there. Out there, says the man. He laughs and shakes his head. He looks not only unperturbed, but amused. A long 20 minutes later, we see two dots appear on the horizon. Just as suddenly as it arose, the storm packs up its bags and buggers off. We watch as our friends, who don't look nearly so cocky now, edge closer and we swim out to greet them. Drinks later, they ask. I nod with alacrity. We have a rest before Rahesh invites us to partake in his mum's special curry before heading to the other side of the bay for evening frivolity. On the terrace, wind chimes tinkle in the light breeze and Morchiba is playing in the background. The sea is calm and in the darkness it meets the sky in soft, velvety swathes. Everyone is lounging on bright cushions, drinking beer or coke all in ebullient form. All that is except for me. I am squatting in a way that is both graceless and deeply uncomfortable, in the most basic hovel known to man. The curry has turned against me. It is the revenge of the goat. In the absence of a lock, the door threatens to open and a misguided cat is mewing and trying to get in. Twice I try to stand, but I am doubled over by crippling cramps. And then, above the whine of the crickets, I hear my boyfriend's voice. It is not a voice that I want to hear right now. (laughs) Just a second, I say. Go back to the others. I'll wait for you, he says. It's dark out here. There are times when you want your other half to be kind and chivalrous. This was not one of them. I blunder out and gesture that I need to leave. To reach our part of the island, we have to climb over a few rocky outcrops. 
We usually love donning our head torches and having a moonlit scramble. There are no water taxis tonight. Usually we have to convince them that we like the walk home and to leave us be. I am now vomiting behind one rock and having the runs behind the next. I have vomited over my new duck egg blue skirt. I have vomited over my boyfriend's feet. I don't know how I have any fluids left. Back in the hut, I assume that I have no moisture remaining to expel from any orifice. I am wrong. Yawn fella's gonna wish he'd installed better plumbing after this says my boyfriend, as he tries to force carroty pieces of sick down the plug hole <laughs> with a pencil. The embarrassment I feel singes my soul. I fear that I may be given the boot, but when I crawl into bed, I see him footering with his first aid kit. I wonder could I improvise a drip, he ponders. He is, you see, a doctor. And instead of being revolted by my condition, he is seeing it as a medical challenge. The thought of needles makes me want to vomit again, so instead he lies beside me and rubs my back until I sleep. When I wake in the morning, my mouth feels like the bottom of a hamster's cage. But for the first time in my life, I have a concave stomach. In bounds my boyfriend with fresh mango and water. It's gorgeous out there, he says, beaming. Shall we go for another kayak? Fuck off, dear, I reply. <laughs> oh, Helen, you're a martyr to your bodily functions. Thanks to Bob for that wonderful story. Rural life isn't easy. Now, if you like what we do and would like to help us keep on doing it, we've launched a Patreon account. 10 by 9 is always free, but we do have overheads, so we're grateful if you want to help out. Also, if you want to keep up with all the 10 by 9 goings on, then go to our website, 10 by 9com or follow us on social media. We are on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and we even have a 10 by 9 YouTube channel where we've added some pics to some of our stories, and Helen McClements is on there. Now, here's our fourth and final story in this podcast. It comes from Sean Mullen, who has such a wonderful, unique style. So, I spent two years working as a teacher in London between 2014 and 2016, and teaching in England is character forming. I mean, you, you can enjoy it, but whether or not it enjoys you is another matter. Um, I, I didn't really enjoy it, and, and the place I worked in in the first year, which I could walk to, was all right, but they weren't really used to my way of doing things, and, and at that stage of my life, four years ago, it was my first year teaching. So I, I started a new place in September 2015, chiefly because they weren't at all aware of my way of doing things, and it was one of those off-state-rated outstanding schools working in a pocket of deprivation, severe deprivation in Battersea, uh, which itself is filthy, filthy rich, and it was performing a fantastic service to the community, and it was an absolutely horrendous place to work, and, and a 50-minute to an hour commute in and out of the centre of London. And getting the train to work in the morning in London was like fighting through a thick forest where the people were trees, but more depressed, and less likely to move if you asked them. 
and it was usually quite sad, but the saddest morning of my commute was one of the earliest in September 2015, because that was the day that all the papers finally decided to go ahead and publish the widely circulated photos of Alan Curdy, the three-year-old Syrian boy who washed up on a Turkish beach. And the pictures were saddening and shocking, but I remember thinking as I stood on the platform that maybe this was the moment we would all start to care, and this made me hopeful. And a woman walked past me reading the sun, and she was looking at me, and she could see me looking at the picture, and she mouthed something at me. So I took my earphones out to hear her message, and she said, get your own bloody paper. And I realized people would not start caring, and I realized I needed to get a bike for the 16-mile return commute. But London was messing with my mind, and I bought a bike and took it back to my house. And my housemate said, why have you bought a child's bike? And I said, it's not, it's okay. Anyway, the bike did my back in after three commutes. So then I got a month-long loan of another bike in January for a tenner through a council scheme, and it was the correct size. And I cycled to work in the dark and the rain and the freezing cold, listening to David Bowie, who had just died, and it was absolutely amazing. I loved the daily near-death experiences and people shouting, learn to ride a bike, and me going past thinking, what? No, shut up, London, I'm from the country. But I had to give the bike back. I couldn't afford to buy it outright, and I went back on the trains, and the year wore on, and my job got worse. And one day, management came into my classroom and told me that my classroom displays were not compliant with school policy. We'll help you change them, they said. So a team of them came in, and they tore all my display boards down. And I said, great, will you help me put them back up again? And they said, no, do it yourself, and they left. So it was nine when I left the school, which was standard. And at least when you travel after seven, the trains are empty. So I took the overground from Battersea towards Waterloo in the gloaming. And as the train got into the station, there he was, blonde and electric, the outgoing mayor of London, Boris Johnson, on the train at the front end of my nearly deserted carriage. The bastard. <laughs> and, and people say to me, why didn't you tell him? about the border or give a brief outline of the Good Friday Agreement, but the Brexit referendum hadn't happened yet. To me, he was just the outgoing Mayor of London. I didn't know he was going to cause Brexit, become Foreign Secretary, and then Prime Minister stroke Fuhrer. As I might have mentioned, London living was wearing me down. It was messing with my mind. I was too tired and too small to shout abuse at Boris Johnson or engage him in political discourse. My self-esteem and morale were lower than a millennial's belt line. I needed a pick-me-up. I needed someone to validate me. And who better to do this than Boris Johnson? <laughs> and you might think, there's no way this guy up here met Boris Johnson. He's just going to use this imagined scenario to make some cheap political points. And if you do think that, you'd be half right. I am going to make some cheap political points. But I did really meet him. Look. <laughs> look at this there. Does it look like we're out on the lash? We weren't, just to clarify. But he'd, but he'd make a brilliant wingman, wouldn't he? He'd bumble about, pretend to fall over, say something racist. The girls would giggle so long as they weren't Muslim, or black, or Irish for that matter. He does have that thing, no, not chlamydia. He has that charisma, there's a buzz about him. I was aware of him in a weird way before I saw him, and he was polite to a point. When I went over to ask for a selfie, to ease my sense of alienation, to feel some chimera of significance, 
he was hugely obliging because he seemed to know instinctively that being in touch and distance to true power for just a moment was what I needed. And he seemed to know that that was all he could offer me or anybody else. And so long as he kept doing that, he would eventually win the day. I mean, what else was he doing on a nearly empty train midweek in London except looking for some idiot to take selfies with him? <laughs> and after the photo was taken, he said, where are you from? And he leaned into me, and I could smell the adultery off his hair. <laughs> now, I, I am a child of the Good Friday Agreement. It changed my future. It changed my child's future. I know it intimately, like most people, even though, like most people, I didn't get far past the first page. But I understand that under the Good Friday Agreement that I am a citizen of the UK, and that my friends and neighbours are as British as Finchley if they want to be, and are as Northern Irish as they want to be, and they will always have that right. And I love how we are the unwanted bit middle bit in a Venn diagram, and I love how our identities mix and scowl at and love one another more than we could ever admit. But I am not British, and I am not Northern Irish. I am Irish, because while I believe in nations and their greatness, I believe in islands and their islandness more. <laughs> Climate change deniers believe that the graph showing how the planet is turning into a Dutch oven at an accelerated rate is just a squiggly line concocted by the elites for political expediency. I feel that way about the border. It was drawn to prevent one civil war and ended up causing at least two. And I grew up in South Throne, four miles from the border, and to be honest, I don't have much truck with it. I spent too much time as a child with guns stuck in my face. So when Boris Johnson asked me where I was from, I said, Ireland. And he was on the ball of his foot, ready to turn and leave. But when I said Ireland, he kind of jutted his head forward and narrowed his eyes, teacherish, as if to say, where are you really from? Tell me what I want to hear. And he waited for me to say more for what seemed like quite a long time. And I said, or depending on your politics, some people would say I'm from Northern Ireland. And Boris Johnson relaxed and leaned back. And he said, and this is absolutely true, well, yes, I was going to say. And with that, he turned and ambled off with that subtle little grin and his mouth slightly open in order to affect an air of stupidity or to catch small insects. <laughs> because you can say what you like about Boris Johnson. You could say he's racist, or worse, that he uses racism for political gain. You can say he's got all the loyalty of an average house cat. You can say that he's posh. You can say that he's damaged. You can say that the reason his shirt is always tucked out is because he philanders so excessively he doesn't have time to tuck it in. You can say he cares more about his political career than he does about caring for his children. You can say he's a bastard. Or you can say, technically, he is not a bastard, but he has created several. You can say he cares little for the Irish, unless as the punchline for a bawdy joke told between the thighs of a pole dancer. But you can't say he's stupid. I mean, after all, he was only talking to me for two seconds, and he stood and waited for me to say Northern Ireland. Despite having obviously never visited, he was able to tell the subtle difference between a South Tyrone and a North Monaghan accent. <laughs> I still had another train to catch. I gleefully posted the photo of myself and Boris Johnson on Facebook with a caption, something like, political visionary and man about town meets outgoing mayor of London, Boris Johnson. 
and waited for the adulation and wonder of all the Facebook people to commence. So what actually happened was quite a lot of people unfriended me. <laughs> and others told me that they were thinking about unfriending me but wanted to see what kind of abuse I got first. <laughs> Somebody said something like, look at that dickhead there, stood beside that other dickhead. My mother, whose arrival on Facebook I was initially suspicious of, but who by that stage I welcomed as the one person who would reliably like my posts and make nice comments, no matter how niche or oblique or self-important they were, did like the photo and then wrote underneath, you are not my son. <laughs> my mother actually has a quite wonderful quote summarizing her feelings towards Boris Johnson. She says he's only good for two things, riding bikes and women. <laughs> So anyway, sorry, I'd had it with London. Then the Brexit referendum happened. And for all London had given me a hard time, I could feel its grief as I traveled in the packed train to work the next day. It was a beautiful summer's morning and everybody on the train was miserable. They were always miserable, but this morning even more so. And I could hear a girl crying uncomforted and someone else was on the phone saying, I can't believe it. I just can't believe it, what happened? Then I went into work, and they were all devastated as well. And the principal was in his office as I walked past, following it on BBC News, lamenting. And I said, yeah, it's terrible. And I mentioned Ireland and the border and the Good Friday Agreement. And he looked at me and said, oh yeah, I never thought of that. And more than three years later, it's still going on. The threat of a no-deal Brexit feels like a fat man with irritable bowel syndrome sitting on your head. I don't know how much longer I'll be part of the EU. I don't know how much longer I'll be part of the UK. And Boris is PM and everyone's laughing at him and calling him names, but I think, having met Boris Johnson, we're all so quick to hate and misunderstandation. I think, with a bit of daring do, a bit of constructive ambiguity, a little bit of red, white and blue, good old British sleight of hand, he might just end up delivering what surely, at this stage, everybody wants. Another bloody referendum. Thank you very much. Oh, that was the line of the night. I could smell the adultery off his hair. I dread to think how that smells, by the way. You can see the photo of Sean with Boris Johnson on our social media feeds, so thanks very much, Sean. And that's it from the podcast for now. Be sure to check out our website and social media. And if you fancy a 10 by 9 at your festival or your conference or social event, see what we have to offer and get in touch. If you enjoy the podcast, spread the word. And if you can give us a rating or even a review at Apple Podcasts, we'd be very grateful. And thank you for listening. Also, big thank yous to all the wonderful people in the black box for eight wonderful years. To our amazing audiences who've stuck by us. But of course, the biggest thank you goes to Maliki, Bob, Helen and Sean. Our theme tune, by the way, comes from the Free Music Archive and is by Fantastic Swimmers, while our incidental music is by Brent Bourgeois, and we got that at Facebook Sounds. For now, bye-bye. <laughs>